Anyone that knows me well knows that one of my greatest guilty pleasures is watching post-apocalyptic zombie movies based on viral outbreaks. Not to be confused with horror films, however, which I avoid. I even have my own running list of top zombie movies ever made, which, if you're interested, I rank I Am Legend as number one and Train to Busan as number two. So when the COVID-19 pandemic first hit and put us all in lockdown, I felt like it was the closest thing to being in a real-life zombie movie, and I kind of enjoyed it. But, of course, that didn't last. So here we are, three years since the onset of the pandemic, and with discussions about mental health at the forefront of, well, pretty much everything. Early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk all over the world about how requiring people to stay at home and in lockdown could negatively affect their mental health, including increasing risk for suicide and non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. So did forcing people to stay at home during lockdown lead to an increase in non-suicidal self-injury? And do we know if self-injury has increased, decreased, or stayed the same since the first lockdown of the pandemic? To answer these questions and to take a deep dive into what people with lived experience of self-injury shared about their experience during lockdown, I am joined today, all the way from Australia, by Dr. Ruth Tatnell. Welcome to Season 3 of the Psychology of Self-Injury Podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. I've had the privilege of getting to know Dr. Ruth Tatnell over the years through ISSS. As you'll hear in this episode, she's laid back and pretty hilarious. She serves on the Membership and Benefits Committee of the ISSS Executive Board, and she is a lecturer and researcher at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. She's been studying NSSI since 2011 and also focuses on suicide prevention and LGBTQIA mental health. Welcome, Dr. Tatnell. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd just like to start, as we do in Australia, by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands that I live and work on, and that is the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And I'd like to offer my respects to the elders past and present. That is great. Thank you. As we begin every episode, what got you first interested in researching self-injury? Uh, my story is probably a little bit of a different one. I was actually interested more so in body modification, and I was looking for a PhD in body modification around emotion regulation, and I got in touch with my past supervisor, Penny Hasking, and I met with her, and she was basically like, that does sound really interesting, but it's not my area of expertise. My area is self-injury, and have a read about it, and if you want to uh, research in that area, then I'd be happy to have you, and so that's kind of where I ended up. So it's not sort of like I said, started out with a great goal of research in, in self-injury, but through doing the the different projects that I did as part of my PhD and since I became very, uh, I guess, involved in the research and uh, very interested in the area as it is, I think, a really important topic. Yeah, I didn't know that, that you had that interest in body modification. Did you do any work with Armando Favaza or read his book, Bodies Under Siege? I've bought two copies of that book. Um, <laughs> I lent the first one to a student a few years ago and never got it back. So now I'm on my second copy. And yeah, it really did, I guess, inspire a bit of that, or at least helped me bring the two together in my mind. I was always intending on looking into body modification um, when I finished my PhD, but 
I haven't done that. I've refocused more on self-injury, suicide prevention, and also LGBT mental health. For listeners that may not be familiar with the difference between body modification and non-suicidal self-injury, could you give a, a quick synopsis of that? Sure. So as we know, um, non-suicidal self-injury is not socially sanctioned, whereas body modification is. So it might include injurious behaviors like scarification, branding, and things like that. But tattooing and even piercing is all under that body modification kind of kind of realm. And subcutaneous implants are in there as well. But yeah, so I guess in a lot of places, some of those behaviours wouldn't be as socially sanctioned in others, but they generally are kind of like part of subculture that is not the same as self-injury. I'm not sure, were you at the 2016 IISS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire? I sure was. Where we talked about tattooing and tried to get consensus about, is that considered NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, or not? I don't quite remember that conversation in detail, but I would have been on the not side. Yeah, I think it was unanimous. I think everyone agreed not to classify that or categorize it as NSSI, like you said, because it's socially sanctioned. It is. And I think in terms of the function of it, I think we can talk about them as very different different behaviors and their functional approach. Like I don't think that as many people would get a tattoo as a way of regulating an emotion in the moment as people who might engage in self-injury might do so. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's possible, but for the majority, it's not. That's not why they do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I had not planned to ask you about that today, but that was just kind of <laughs> came up. And I know we're here to talk about self-injury during the pandemic. And I know probably a lot of people are tired of hearing about COVID and the pandemic at this point, but I think there's still a lot of good information and research that was done during the pandemic that really can inform our, I guess, current focus and treatment for individuals who might self-injure now when they would not have prior to the pandemic, or maybe they started because of the pandemic. So early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk all over the world, really, about how the initial lockdown, the shelter in place, stay at home orders, whatever we want to call it, how those would affect people's mental health, including risk for suicide and non-suicidal self-injury. So you and a couple of your colleagues decided to actually measure this. And you just published your research findings in the journal Archives of Suicide Research, which I'll include a link in the episode notes. Can you walk us through how you did your study and what you found? In other words, did the initial lockdown of the COVID-19 pandemic increase self-injury urges and behaviors like many people thought would happen? Okay, so to answer the last part first, sort of, but also no. We actually ended up finding that the vast majority of people that we, I was going to say spoke to, but it was an online survey kind of structure, reported that there was no change to their to their urges and behavior which i thought was really interesting because we had um had all of that talk about how people were concerned about self-injury and suicide spiking during uh, lockdowns in particular but as a result of the pandemic and that hasn't necessarily really played out in the literature but coming back to the start how did we decide to do that study It was a bit of an add-in to a study that I was already doing. So I was putting together a project for my fourth year students, which is, we call it the honours year. Our program here is a three-year undergrad degree, and then students can apply into honours, in which they do sort of a small research project, or we call it a thesis or a dissertation, and they will do a 6,000-word report on that, and they run a research project throughout their fourth year of study. 
So I had put together this study for my fourth years, which was looking at something else to do with self-injury. It was about social inclusion and that sort of thing. That was all happening kind of around the time that our lockdown started. And so we just added some questions in with ethical approval just to see what people's experience was like. And then, yeah, sort of came out that people's experience was really, really mixed, which I think is an interesting finding. So you were already doing a study and when the pandemic hit, it just made sense to add some questions about self-injury urges and behaviors increase, decrease, stay the same. And you said you found some mixed results. Can you tell us a little bit about how you gathered that data? You mentioned it's a qualitative and quantitative, so a mixed methods research study. So can you walk us through what that means and what that looked like? Sure. So we collected some measures. So things like the ISAS, which is the Inventory of Statements about Self-Injury. We used a few other measures, but we also asked some bespoke questions. So things like, during this lockdown, did you feel as connected to people as normal, more connected, less connected, or about the same? And we had people rate on a scale of zero to 100, a sliding scale, how connected to others they felt. So really kind of getting more of that subjective experience than we often do with the existing validated measures that we use. And then we just had a couple of really simple binary questions. So, and all of the sample were people who had reported a history of self-injury at some point. They might've stopped, they might've been continuing, but every single one of them had some lived experience with self-injury. So we asked them, you know, did you experience a change to your urges to self-injure? Yes or no. And then people who said yes, we invited them to put in what that was to them. So why they thought that that had happened. We also asked the same question about behavior. So did you experience a change in your self-injury behavior? Yes or no. So a lot of no's again, but where we had yes, sometimes it was a decrease, sometimes it was an increase. And if it was an increase, we asked them to tell us why that was, why they thought that that might be happening. A lot of it really came out to be around social connection, which I thought was really interesting because we do perceive, you know, rightfully so, we conceive of self-injury as being a self-directed behavior, an intrapersonal coping strategy, something that people might do to make themselves feel better but it does seem to be very connected with interpersonal or our external connections with other people as well. So you're asking specifically about the first lockdown right there in Australia. So that would be what, March 2020 to... Yeah, yeah. I think it was six weeks. So it would have been March through April. And I think we did the survey from April through June. So it was just after, sort of at the tail end of that lockdown and sort of asking people to reflect back over the previous month. The thing is that I wish that we had the ability, if we knew then what we know now, right, I wish we'd had the ability to follow those people up over the following lockdowns. So I'm in Melbourne, once called the most lockdown city in the world, and we were in lockdown for over 200 days. And so I would be very interested to have been able to go back to those same participants and sort of say, you know, these many days of lockdown later, what's this all look like for you now? But with an anonymous online survey, you don't get the opportunity. Yeah, I remember during our IS board meetings, <laughs> you were still in quarantine for so long. From my understanding, Australia had one of the lowest COVID rates, correct? Yeah, presumably because of all the lockdowns. Who can say? <laughs> yeah. So you found that the majority reported no changes to their urges yeah. or behavior for self-injury. And this is among all people with a history of self-injury that you interviewed. 
because they all had a history of it. Yeah, so 196 out of 315 had no change to either behavior or urges, which I guess, and that's about 60% of the sample, which I guess is pretty good, really, when you think about it. For some of those people, that might be no urge to relapse. But for others, it might mean that they are continuing to self-injure at the same rate as previously, and we don't know what that was. So that could be anything from daily, weekly, monthly, or once a year. I believe reading 11.4%, so 1 in 10, reported an increase in both self-injury urges and behavior. Yeah, that's right. So it was 11%-ish, around 36 people had an increase in both urges and behavior, which is not bad, really, when you think about it. There were quite a few as well that had an increase in urges, but a decrease in behavior, which I thought was quite an interesting finding. And some had a decrease in their urges, but no change to their behavior. So whether that means they continued or didn't continue, it's unclear. But I do think those are, it's kind of interesting, these these little differences. So some experienced no change to their urges, but an increase in behavior. So still the same urges, but engaging in it more. Why would they be doing that? And some had no change in their urges, but a decrease in their behavior, which I think is another kind of like interesting little nuance in the data. Another reason why it's so important, I think, to look at the lived experience and qualitative aspects of it, because from looking at these numbers, we don't really understand why these changes are there. Yeah, so let's stick to that, the increase here, the 11.4% or the 1 in 10 who reported an increase in self-injury urges and behaviors during that first lockdown. What did they say in your qualitative research that led to this increase? Yeah, so a lot of it was about the lockdown itself. So some people, if they were having less social interaction than they were used to, or less connection, then that could be a reason. So some people said that they didn't have the usual distractions of being social. Others said, you know, I can do it more because people aren't watching or I'm on my own more. So nobody sees it. Or when they felt more anxious or being alone or feeling depressed, the urges got worse. And some of those usual factors that might sort of maybe prevent more severe self-injury weren't there. So if you don't have to hide your wounds when you go out, then that possibility might lead to an increase in NSSI. These are some of the things that our participants said. So, yeah, they weren't worried about people finding out, doing it in places that they hadn't done previously because people weren't there and people couldn't see them only a small number of people reported having experienced a decrease in self-injury urges and behaviors during the first lockdown. What are some reasons they gave for this? Yeah, so these ones I think were really interesting because it seemed to be the same thing. So it was about decreased social interaction, but the positive side for those people. So like they weren't feeling as much social anxiety, less stress because they're working from home, living with other people and having less time alone meant that for some people it was harder to like get into the bathroom or to have that private time to engage in self-injury. One person, only one, said that they were having some more support from family who were at home more. So I felt like that was, you know, at least one positive outcome for other people. And others simply said that they were just too scared of COVID and they didn't want to be a burden on the healthcare system and didn't want to end up at a hospital where they might contract COVID. And two people actually, they felt so bad that they decreased their behaviours because they didn't feel like they deserved to feel better. So they decreased their behaviour? Yeah, 
it was sort of like a almost like a defeatist mentality of feeling like nothing I do matters. I don't deserve to feel better, so I won't even bother with this. So I guess in their mind, like we conceptualize self-injury as a way to feel better, as a coping strategy. Yeah. So for them, they're unfortunate. They're they just weren't going to feel better either way and didn't feel that they deserved as if it's something to earn. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. So I think that lines up quite a lot with some of the theories around self-punishment and shame, self-judgment and self-injury. So people who feel a lot of shame can sometimes engage in self-injury, as you would know. Yeah. Well, you, earlier you mentioned you also looked at social connection, and then I know you also looked at age and if people were out of work during that first period of the lockdown. Can you tell us what you found with relation to self-injury, urges and behaviors, increasing, decreasing, staying the same in relation to those variables? Yeah. So younger age, identifying as a woman and being out of work were all things that increased risk for both increased urges and behavior. And people who started NSSI at younger ages also were more at risk of increased NSSI urges and behavior as well. I think that's a really interesting outcome, finding that people who begin the behavior earlier versus people who begin the behavior later might be more at risk of that becoming a persistent coping strategy for negative emotions. And what about social connection? Yeah, social connection is a really important one. So that was significant across all of our models that we did. People who reported feeling more connected to others were at less risk of those worsening urges and behavior. For those who were able to maintain, manage and engage with that social connection, we could conceptualize it as protective of those urges and behaviors getting worse during that lockdown period, which I think speaks to a larger concern throughout the pandemic and the lockdowns that we've seen across all of the different countries in the world is that social connection is such an important thing for us. And in terms of mental health generally, when we feel that social connection going away or if we're unable to engage with our important social people, then that's likely to influence our mental health in a negative way. And for people who with lived experience of self-injury, that it makes sense that that would lead to an increase in those behaviors. There was a headline in the national news here in the U.S. about a study, a really, really long study. I think it's still going on. It started, at, I want to say, 1938. I didn't read the article in detail, so I didn't go to the original source. I probably should have before having made this comment. But I know what the thing that they had said that what is most closely linked to personal happiness is connecting to other people and having a close friend or family member in whom they can confide. And I know there was also a study here by one of the insurance companies, I want to say it was Cigna, that found that loneliness was a significant risk factor for premature death and similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or something along those lines. And so we are wired for connection. And here you're sharing, though, that some individuals who were in quarantine during the lockdown and stayed at home, they experienced lower urges or less frequent urgent behaviors for self-injury because of the social anxiety they didn't have to face other people. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's a, a really interesting comment because, you know, we are saying social connection is so important. Um, having a friend to talk to, disclosing your feelings, expressing yourself to another person is, is all really important stuff. And I wish I could ask those people these questions, but if I can reflect on my understanding of people in general, we all have different levels of social interaction that we're comfortable with. And for some of us, that's 
a lot. And for others, it's really not. And so, you know, we were after that first lockdown, eventually we were allowed, if you lived by yourself, a bubble buddy, a person that you were able to like see and go over to their house and they could come over to your house and that was legal. Because other than that, you know, I lived by myself and I didn't I wasn't allowed to see anybody except for maybe going for an, a walk with someone for an hour a day, if possible, wearing a mask. But yeah, so I think I'm have traditionally been a very, very, very social person. And so the social connection thing for me personally at the start of the lockdowns was really hard. And I think after those 200 some days, we're all quite different people than those who we started out as. But to just go back to your actual question, I would suspect that for those people who felt like this is great, I don't have to have all the social anxiety, I'm sure that they were maintaining their connections with you know, a special other in other ways. So maybe catching up on Zoom, the phone, a lot of people I know who are more introverted might be more likely to engage with online friends than in-person friends. So I think, you know, social connection is a tricky concept because, you know, there's so many ways to conceptualize it. It could be just you and me talking on Zoom, this is a social connection, or, you know, having a chat on Messenger or on Reddit, if that's your jam, or going out for a walk or, you know, talking to your friends on the phone. So there's so many ways to maintain appropriate social connection. And I would suspect for those people that it was more anxiety around not our strong interpersonal connections, but around other people, you know, perhaps like people in the workplace, people in public transport, that sort of thing, less social anxiety about those kind of events, rather than the everyday social connection that that is so important. And I think the way you asked the question being a subjective, meaning, do they feel socially connected is what's most important. Like you're saying, you're a very social person, and some people are not we're all wired for connection, just some of us need more of it and more frequent throughout the week and some a little bit less frequent. But in my clinical work, I know in treating young people, not necessarily individuals or young people who self-injure, but many of them do, Mm. the students that experienced significant social anxiety did find relief during the first part of the pandemic, during the lockdowns and self-quarantine and stay-at-home orders, yet they also struggled the most when people started going back to in-person school attendance and interacting with others, just as all of us became a little bit more rusty in our social skills, I think they also became rusty in whatever social skills they had prior to the pandemic. And it was just really, has been a really difficult adjustment for many young people who did well during the lockdown, but now that they're forced to get back out there in certain ways, struggle. So I, I, yeah, I agree. That would be really neat to have looked at follow-up with these participants to see if they continued with experiencing no changes in self-injury urges and behaviors, or if they worsened after the lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been good to be able to do that. And I would speculate that probably it did get worse after the lockdowns. And I, I think if nothing else, this time has shown us that we do have the capacity for greater accessibility in workplaces and education environments than we've really ever allowed people to have. And I think it it feels disappointing to see businesses and schools going just fall back into the way things used to be without any consideration of the fact that, you know, some people really performed better when they're able to do things in a way that that works for them. Yeah. So I guess a lot of the work I've done in the last couple of years has really highlighted to me the importance of making things accessible to all different people and to not 
lump people into a category without sort of interrogating the specifics of, of those individuals more. One of the positives that came out of the pandemic was our hospital shifting to telehealth mm. very quickly, actually about a month and just getting this secure platform, not Zoom, and I still use it. And that was great because my son, he was born during the pandemic yeah. and being able to do telehealth appointments was really helpful for me in being able to do my job and also being able to yeah. see students who couldn't make it in person, didn't want to make it in person. But then now when we switch back to in person, I'm still able to about half my caseload is virtual appointments, maybe a little bit less now, it might be 40% virtual, 60% in person. So that's one positive that came out. Yeah, a friend of mine started an online psych practice during the pandemic, and it's been great. And it's still fully online. And it's really it's working super well. And I think that kind of accessibility is so important for people in regional and rural areas who might not be able to have access to the kind of support that they need, especially, but also, you know, people with social anxiety concerns that might need to be able to speak to somebody. A common question that I actually get from a lot of people is, well, is telehealth or virtual therapy as good or as effective as in-person. And everyone has their own preference, of course, but we know research shows they're pretty equivalent even when it comes to psychological mm -hmm. testing and evaluations in addition to therapy. So that's a positive too. Yeah, absolutely. And cost-effective and all of those things. And it's all about rapport, isn't it? Like yeah. if you can build a rapport with your, with your clients through whatever medium, then you're going to have a good therapeutic relationship, hopefully. Yeah. Which is usually the best indicator of doing better in therapy and achieving goal treatment goals and, and outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> so you, we're talking about, you said 60%, so all, around three out of five individuals with a history of self-injury during the first lockdown mm -hmm. did not experience any changes in their self-injurious thoughts, urges, or behaviors. How do your study results compare to those of others who've also done similar studies? Results, I think, just generally across the board are pretty mixed. So there are some in the UK that were more so looking at presentations to emergency departments, and they found increases for boys and men. But in the UK, they talk about self-harm instead of non-suicidal self-injury, which for anybody who's listening who's not sure what that distinction is, self-harm is more of an umbrella term that includes non-suicidal self-injury as well as suicide attempt and suicide death. So I study those things separately, but in the UK, they do study those things together. And we do know that men and boys tend to die by suicide at a higher rate. So it could be inflated. It could have inflated those statistics in the UK to include suicide attempting and suicide death. But there are a couple of studies with young people, adolescents, and they've found increases and considerable increases as well. There's a study you and I were speaking about before we started recording where they've gone from 20% in psychiatric populations up to 95% in 2021, which is an incredible increase. And there's some research out of Sweden that's showing, especially for adolescent girls, that the uh, rates are increasing, which I guess both of those are perhaps what we might expect to see, given that suicide is more common among young men and boys and self-injury does tend to be more common among young women and girls. So I guess it makes sense results. But others like us have found sort of different things that, you know, younger age is a risk factor, being woman is a risk factor, being in a socially disadvantaged group is a risk factor, which is, a, they're all risk factors anyway. So I guess, yeah, the results 
tend to be a little bit mixed. And I would suggest that that highlights to me that there are subgroups in here that are worth looking at or talking to separately and individually about what's going on. Yeah, I remember reading and presenting a lot, reading a lot of the research and presenting a lot during the pandemic about not only suicide, but non-suicidal self-injury. And the majority of studies were showing an increase in non-suicidal self-injury, at least among adolescents, among young people. Mm-hmm. But then the, the big question too is, was the lockdown going to cause increases in suicide? There's a lot of concern, understandably so, because the risk factors were all there uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And indeed, suicide attempts did increase. Suicidal thoughts did increase, but deaths did not. Suicide deaths did not. In a few countries, though, it was about a year later, like in Japan, that there was an increase in suicide deaths, but specifically among women. And I think their description was because so much fell on women during that part of the pandemic that they were either having to work from home or lose their job, or they were working from home and taking care of children. I mean, men do that too. I mean, I I did as well. But I think culturally speaking, in a lot of countries, women tend to bear that burden. And so I know there was an increase in some countries with suicide. Yeah, I think it does depend, including with non-suicidal self-injury. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, here we didn't see the the projected increases in suicides. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the coronial reports don't come through immediately. And some of those, you know, single car deaths might later be ruled suicides. And so, we, we, you know, the final numbers, we might not know for a couple of years. But yeah, I agree with you. Even anecdotally, talking to friends with families who had to, and colleagues as well, who had they were homeschooling their kids while trying to teach their students and do their research and look after the home and that sort of thing. It was, it has been, and probably for a lot of people continues to be a really difficult time. So yeah, I would say that there has been a lot more uh, on women's plates during the pandemic than perhaps there was before, even though there's always a lot on women's plates. Yeah, and I wonder if that helps explain a little bit about the increase in self-injurious urges and behaviors in your sample being primarily among the women. Yeah, yep, yep, quite right. And also, I think um, it wasn't significant, but there was an increase when people were living with a partner as well, that the odds of uh, increase was, was higher. So yeah, I think that having to take on more of the schooling stuff, I think has been really difficult for a lot of women, especially. And I actually was keeping tabs on the coroner reports in Victoria during the pandemic and throughout 2020, among young people, at least looking at suicide rates. So I know you guys have done, at least I guess Eastern Australia had done some great work there in making that publicly available to the rest of us. Yeah, and the website is actually really cool. It's got all these interactive graphs where you can change the samples and change the dates and look at changes in suicide rates over years. I know that I shouldn't be so like, oh, it's so cool looking at this, but it is a really, really great and interesting website to check out if you are interested in that sort of thing. We have very similar here in the US too, so I had kept tabs on that. Although, yeah, like you said, the data is just delayed. It's so hard to tabulate yeah. and usually comes a couple of years later or a year or two later. I would say though, that group that you talked about, the ones that are having more trouble getting back to everyday life after the pandemic and after being able to do a lot of things from home, they might be the most at-risk group for now, the ones having trouble with re-entry into the old ways. Yeah. Yeah. I remind the young people I treat as well as myself that 
again, we all became a little bit rustier in our social skills. And I even felt it when I was starting to spend time with groups of friends. And I was like, why? I'm usually pretty socially skilled. Why do I feel so awkward at this moment? And I, and I had to give myself some grace and say, you're out of practice. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. And so being able to get back yeah. into things, like I feel like I'm, I'm back up to par now. So I think it does take time and practice their skills that can be learned. Definitely. Same for me. I was really rusty. I didn't even know how to behave in a group setting. <laughs> This is embarrassing, uh, but we're getting there now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, to summarize, just to summarize here, did self-injury increase during the COVID-19 lockdown then? For some people, yeah. For some people it did. Not all people. And it sounds like the majority, there were no changes. Yeah, which you know, is good or bad because, if again, if that's still you know, referring to daily behavior, those no changes are not positive. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah, And do you think these results generalize to people living outside of Australia? Because I know your study participants were there in Australia. I think there's potential. I think it could generalize to anywhere that was going through a similar kind of situation. So I think, you know, where countries might have been in those same kind of lockdowns, I think it's very likely that those could generalize outside of Australia. And I know you kind of addressed this a little bit earlier to an extent. Do we know now if self-injury has increased, decreased, or stayed the same since that first lockdown of the pandemic? I know your research, you didn't follow them up, but what about other research? Are you familiar? Do we know this? Look, I think other research is suggesting maybe it did increase. I think there's definitely space for perhaps a meta-analysis, which I won't do, um, but uh, hopefully somebody else might do a meta-analysis. Or there's space to do a broad-scale follow-up as well, which I might do, and just sort of see where people are at now, thinking back over the past three years. There are flaws, of course, with retrospective design like that because memory isn't a perfect thing. But given that my interest is more in the subjective experience and the lived experience, taking a qualitative approach, I think, can help with that. Well, you kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask, like, what's next for you? So you have these study ideas. Anything else? Actually, yeah, I'm doing a bit of stuff in the LGBTQIA plus arena at the moment. So this year I'll be writing a bit about supports that partners of people who transition gender need. I've got a project on longitudinal modeling of risk for LGB and questioning children towards suicide and self-injury looking at the outcomes of a project that helps to build self-esteem and self-confidence for same-sex attracted men and looking at the experience of people who go through gender transition assessments for surgery. So kind of that's that's my this year plan, uh, although we'll be foraying back into suicide and self-injury as well at some point with probably my fourth years. Okay, so that that's separate, not necessarily looking at self-injury among among that group. No, not among that group, more generally. Well, for those that are interested in that, we did do an interview with Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro back in July 2021, so episode 15, if anyone's interested, can listen to my interview with her on self-injury among LGBTQ individuals and the prevalence rates sadly being much higher in that group. Yeah, and I can recommend that episode too. I really enjoyed it, and she highlighted something that I think is really important, which is that we need a greater focus on intersectionality when we're talking about these factors. So yes, LGBTQIA plus identity does confer, not inherently, but there are, is some greater risk among people who are members of that group. 
but you know that's not the same for every member of that group so we do need to be really thinking about those different intersections of identities that might be of most importance in these areas yeah just so we can direct the help where it's most needed yes yeah to bring everything together based on our conversation today about self-injury and the COVID-19 pandemic, what would you recommend to parents? I would recommend keeping an eye on your kids, obviously, and especially if they seem to be isolating and withdrawing. So I think the thing that really came out of the study for me was that isolation can be a really big risk factor. So if you notice your child's withdrawn and, and being isolated, then it might be appropriate to ask the question. And I guess my advice to parents beyond that would always be, it's always appropriate to ask the question. That's great. And based on our conversation today about self-injury and the pandemic, what would you recommend to other professionals, whether other researchers or clinicians? I think I'd recommend just checking in with people. If they have been alone a lot, see how they're going with that, see how they're going with reintegration after these lockdowns. And Again, just asking the question, I think it's important. People might not necessarily openly disclose self-injury, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And then it could be something that they might want help with. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Talking to each other and talking to others. So just maintaining that social connection in whatever way is most appropriate. Because we also know from a couple of theories that isolation and disconnection is kind of that risk factor for suicide that takes people from ideation to action. That's uh, Klonsky and May's theory. And so I think in terms of overall suicide prevention as well, just making sure that we're all reaching out to each other and making sure that the people we care about know that you're a safe space to talk to and that you can connect with others and get help when you need it. I love that focus on connection. And I often work with the teenagers that I treat on finding that sweet spot of how often meets their emotional mental health needs in terms of connecting with others. Maybe it's once a week on Saturdays, or maybe they're really social and need to Mm -hmm. see people three, four times a week to get that need met. Everyone's different. So I like your focus on just finding whatever that connection is for them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Tatnell, for sharing about your research, what's next for you, and really shedding some light on the pandemic and its effect on self-injury urges and behaviors among those who have a history of self-injury. I really appreciate it and hope this is helpful for those listening today. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to the Psychology of Self-Injury.